Welcome to Essex Church, where this community, this gathered community of Kensington Unitarians, meets each week for worship. Some opening words by Victoria Weinstein. Let us rest in this peace. Spirit of life and love, we've gathered again out of our separateness to know that we are not alone. In our fears, we are not alone. In our grasping for peace, finding it in fleeting moments, and then losing it again to some turmoil of the mind or heart, we're not alone. In our cynical moments, our wonderings, is this all there is? Is this the best we can do? We're not alone. In our pain, we are not alone. And so we dwell in you, spirit of healing and holiness. For this brief time, willing to be held here in an immense and eternal love whose origins we do not know, whose reality is irresistible, it calls us on, it reaches between us to fill spaces, it consoles the grieving and it calms the anxious, it gives new vision to eyes dimmed by tears and exhaustion. It opens the ear to deeper truth. It makes a place in the heart as hope. Let us rest in this peace and be held here. And may this, our chalice flame, small though it is, burn brightly and represent a hope of peace for all our world. I'm going to ask Veronica now to tell you a story. It's a bit of class, this. Written originally by Leo Tolstoy, and a quality storyteller to tell it. (laughs) I've got my glasses on anyway, thank God. (laughs) Three questions. The conscientious emperor of some vast eastern country one day realised that he would only be able to rule his people with wisdom and fairness if he knew the answers to three questions. The three questions were, when is the best time to do something? Who are the most important people to work with? What is the most important thing to do at all times? to obtain anything but conventional responses from his advisors, the emperor issued a decree throughout his kingdom that whosoever could provide a satisfactory answer to each of those questions would receive a great reward. Needless to say, dozens of people who thought themselves wise descended on the palace in an attempt to win the money. But the emperor wasn't impressed by any of the answers they gave. The consensus seemed to be that the best time to do something could only be determined by fortune tellers. That the most important people to work with are rich and influential people. And that the most important things a man can do are those things which will enhance his wealth or power. Disappointed by such trite and predictable replies, 
The emperor determined to seek elsewhere for the answers to his questions. He had heard that there was a hermit living in the mountains, a wise man who had spent many years alone pondering the mysteries of life. So he decided to pay the man a visit. However, the hermit was known to be very suspicious of rich people and rather frightened of big groups. So, disguising himself as a peasant and ordering his attendants to wait for him at the foot of the mountains, the emperor made his way alone up the slope to the hermit's humble home. When he arrived, he saw an old man digging the ground in front of a hut. In response to the emperor's greeting, the hermit nodded, but continued digging. It was a hot day, and the ground was baked, so the work was hard for the frail old man. He was breathing heavily, and each time he thrust his spade into the ground, he winced in pain. The emperor approached him and said, I've come to ask your help with three questions that have been troubling me for some time. When is the best time to do something? Who are the most important people to work with? And what is the most important thing to do at all times? The hermit listened attentively. But he made no verbal reply. He simply patted the emperor on the back and carried on digging. You must be tired, said the emperor, after observing the man for a while. Let me help you. The hermit thanked him, handed over the spade and sat down on the ground for a rest. He seemed deep in thought. The emperor dumped the parched ground in silence for about an hour, but as the sun was setting, he put down the spade and said, I came here for answers to three questions. If you're not able to give me any answers, please tell me, and then I can leave. The hermit lifted up his head. Don't you hear someone running? Look, over there! The emperor turned round and looked towards the woods, from which a man with a long white beard was emerging. He seemed to be in some distress, running wildly and holding his stomach as if in great pain. He stumbled, groaning towards the emperor, falling unconscious at his feet. Blood was pouring from a deep gash in the man's stomach. The emperor ran to bring water from the stream, clean, cleansed the man's wound thoroughly, and used his own shirt to make a bandage. The blood was flowing so profusely that the short shirt was soon soaked, so the emperor rinsed it out and bandaged the wound a second time. He continued to do this until the bleeding stopped. Eventually, the injured man regained consciousness and complained of thirst. The emperor ran and filled a jug at the stream. Then he cradled the man's head tenderly as he helped him to sip the refreshing water. 
By now, the sun had set and the night had started to get cold. So the old hermit and the emperor carried the wounded man into the hut and put him on the bed. When his patient seemed comfortable, the emperor, exhausted by the day's activity, sat on the ground and fell into a deep sleep. He awoke as the sun was arising and looked over at the bed. The man's eyes were open and he was trying to speak. Please, forgive me, he muttered. Why do I need to forgive you? asked the emperor, puzzled by the man's words. You do not know me, replied the man, but I know you. Some years ago, you were responsible for my brother's death. And you confiscated all my property. I swore then that one day I would take my revenge. Yesterday, when I learned that you were coming alone to this place, I planned to lie in wait for you and kill you as you began your descent. But after waiting a long time, there was no sign of you, so I left the cover of the bushes and set out to look for you. Unfortunately... I came across your attendants, and one of them recognized me as your enemy and stabbed me. Luckily, I ran into you, and you were able to bandage my wound and take care of me. I planned to kill you, but instead, you saved my life. I am ashamed of what I intended to do, and grateful for what you have done for me. If I survive, I shall be your loyal subject for the rest of my life. Do you forgive me? Oh, the emperor was overjoyed that he had been reconciled with his former enemy in this strange way. He not only forgave the man, he promised to restore all his property and to have the royal physician take care of him until he was completely healed. The emperor summoned his attendants and ordered them to take the man home. Then he returned to the hermit because he still had not received the answers to his questions. He found the old man sowing seed in the ground he had dug the previous day. Because of all the drama of the past few hours, uh, you weren't able to give me the answers to my questions. Could you do so now, uh, before I leave? asked the emperor. The hermit looked at the emperor. But your questions have already been answered, he said. How's that? asked the emperor, puzzled. Yesterday, if you hadn't taken pity on me and helped me with my digging, you would have been killed on your way home. Therefore, the most important time was the time you spent digging. The most important person was I. And the best thing you could do was to help me. Later, when the injured man arrived, 
The most important time was the time you spent taking care of him. He was the most important person. And the most important thing you could do was precisely what you did. Remember, there is only one important time. Now. There is only one important person. The person you are with. Because... Who knows if you will ever have dealings with any other person in the future. And there is only one important thing you can do. And that is, make that person, the person who is at your side, happy. These are the only important things in life. The emperor thanked the old hermit and returned a much wiser man to his palace. You might want to follow the reading um, which is actually on your little hymn sheet. It's called Last Night As I Was Sleeping. It's a poem written by Antonio Machado, um, a 20th century Spanish poet and philosopher. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt. Marvellous error that a spring was breaking out in my heart. I said, along which secret aqueduct, O water, are you coming to me? Water of a new life that I have never drunk. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt. Marvellous error, that I had a beehive here inside my heart and the golden bees were making white combs and sweet honey from my old failures. Last night as I was sleeping, I dreamt. Marvellous error, that a fiery sun was giving light inside my heart. It was fiery because I felt warmth as from a hearth and sun because it gave light and brought tears to my eyes. Last night, as I slept, I dreamt, marvellous error, that it was God I had here inside my heart. Last Night As I Was Sleeping by Antonio Machado. And that brings us now into a time of stillness, meditation, reflection, There'll be a few words to lead us into that time of meditation and then we'll share some silence together for a few minutes and then we'll have some piano music to close that. So find um, a way to be comfy in your seats, maybe put down anything that you don't need in your hands. Take a few of those lovely deep breaths and let yourself sink into a place of rest and relaxation. Aware of the sounds outside in the busy city, and aware of the room's sounds, the sounds of people around us, but still with our attention focused inwards. As I ask you, if you wish, to contemplate a very simple thing, and that is a good decision. I invite you 
to think of a good decision that you made in your life and how that felt. got on with that meditation we followed earlier on which asked us to think about a good decision we felt we'd made in life most of us have lived quite a few years now and must surely have made a fair few good decisions in our lives not least of which must surely rank highly your choosing to get out of bed this morning and come to church but I don't know about you but what surprised me when I tried out the meditation during this last week I was surprised how much easier I found it to think of my bad decisions than my, my good ones. And it's apparently a very human trait to dwell on our mistakes in this way. You could see it perhaps as an evolutionary trait. Our an- ancient ancestors would be more likely to survive if they understood what they've done wrong. So they need to focus on the errors. Now, one of the books I've been reading this week is called The Decisive Moment, How the Brain Makes Up Its Mind, uh, written by journalist Jonah Lehrer, published in 2010. It's an interesting book. It uses all sorts of kind of modern research, information gained through recent developments in neuroscience to explore how we humans make decisions. It's full of true-life accounts and interesting snippets. And Lara's main point is that different circumstances require different decision-making processes, from the measured kind of rational thought provided by this bit of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, to the instant decisions made um, fueled by emotion and, and by physical sensations that comes from the limbic system, the back of the brain. And Lara ends his book rather touchingly by thanking his wife to be for all her support and stating that the decision to marry was one of the best he's ever made. And I couldn't help but wonder how they're getting on now because Lara lost his job in the summer. Um, he was sacked from his position as staff reporter from the, for the New Yorker magazine because he was discovered to have made up a quotation from Bob Dylan And he'd committed various other journalist crimes, such as plagiarism, taking someone else's words, using them as his own. In his book, The Decisive Moment, Lehrer had explained that the dreadful errors made by financiers in the lead-up to the banking crisis of 2008 were linked to the buzz some people get from gambling, that increasingly unreal sense of what the odds actually are, coupled with a disassociation from the likely outcomes, the consequences of our actions. It seems that Lehrer had problems with his own guidance system. And he's not the only one. I first thought of the subject of today's service when I was reading ages ago about the migratory birds that would be visiting our shores this autumn and winter, some of them to stay here and some to um, stop over as they make a journey um, further afield to warmer climes. Millions of birds come and go in the UK. As an island, we're an important rest stop on their migratory journeys. And there's something quite moving for me about that image of birds knowing when it is time to leave, Um, knowing instinctually which path to take knowing where they need to get to and roughly when so that the food's there for them. 
And there's also still some mystery about animal migration and about the ability of birds like homing pigeons to literally find their way home, sometimes over thousands of miles. It's thought that they use the Earth's magnetism in some way to help guide them, and yet visual clues also seem to play a part in migration. It's easy to romanticise such an image of knowing what to do and where to go, particularly when we're faced with the endless decision-making process of 21st century living in a Western and relatively well-to-do land. Have you tried to choose a takeaway meal recently, or what to eat in a restaurant, or, or which bar of soap to buy in a supermarket, or heaven forbid a new piece of furniture, or, or even which TV programme to watch, it is exhausting to be surrounded by so much choice. And sadly, it seems it can also be exhausting to be a migratory bird. Uh, the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds reported last week that thousands of weary birds have been seen falling into the seas off Britain's south coast. Birds like thrushes, blackbirds, goldcrest, fieldfares, they seem to have set off from Scandinavia in good weather, and they were then caught first in terrible fog and then in storms that weakened them and disoriented them. It's a very sad story, and it's worth having a look at it online. There are actually some very sweet pictures of birds, the lucky ones, who found their way onto boats and then sat there resolutely till they reached land, but sadly a lot of them didn't. So migratory birds have an innate sense of the right thing to do, and sometimes the conditions that they find themselves in work against them. And for us, it's a bit more complex, because we've got so many different forces compelling us often to move in contradictory directions. No wonder we find it hard to choose what to eat or to wear or to watch as entertainment. And no wonder that religious people have long considered how best to reach decisions and have recommended seeking guidance from what might be termed a higher power. There are two systems in particular that have always appealed to me. And again, I've been interested this week to, to find out how much they've got in common. The Jesuit and the Quaker traditions. Now, Ignatius Loyola deserves a service all to himself. But very briefly, he was born in 1491 and through physical trauma and then enforced rest in bed, he experienced a profound religious experience which led him to develop a system of spiritual practice which became the prayer practice of Jesuits to this day. Putting this very simply, his process of decision-making involved stages beginning with submitting the issue to God with indifference, meaning without a preferred outcome. But then, putting forward your best option for God to consider and asking, asking for guidance. Then when you've reached a decision, taking it back to God to ask for confirmation of what you've decided before you act upon it. This process has, has surprising similarities with the process of discernment, which the, the founder of, of the Quaker movement, the Society of Friends, George Fox, works towards, again, after a powerful religious experience. 
Quakers seek the guidance of the Spirit. They seek the light. And they hope to discern through a consideration of issues such as moral purity. Is this really the right thing to do? To be patient, not rushing the Spirit. To seek consistency with one another and with biblical teaching. And to become aware of a sense of inner peace, consistency and harmony. Ignatius recommended a careful awareness of our inner feelings, both emotional and physical. If he felt peaceful, uplifted, satisfied, then he felt this was the guidance of God. It's interesting, too, that in shamanic practice, in Taoism, in Judaism, similar processes are used, cultivating an inner awareness of what feels right, but also with an awareness of the signs around us. Put simply, does this feel like it's going with the flow? Is it easy, perhaps effortless? Are things falling into place? I think many of us probably use similar processes for decision-making. Even if we use different terminology to describe it, we sense, don't we, that something is right for us. And we might describe a gut feeling, a knowing of what we must do, here, down in the belly, rather than up here in the head. And again, science can back up that old awareness with research that shows that we do have an entropic nervous system here in our digestive system. It's all right to trust our guts at times. And it's all right, I think, to think about terminology that we use. I I spent two years at theology college training to be a minister, and, and on my first day, I wondered if I was going to stay the course. We all sat in a circle, somewhat awkward, and we were asked um, what had led us to be there at the college. And this, this was a, a Christian theology college, and my heart dropped when somebody said, oh, Jesus told me to be here, because I wasn't sure if I could relate with people who had that kind of theology. But oh, joy of joys, when the very liberal lecturer said quite keenly, tell me what you mean by that, Jesus told you to do this. Did you hear a voice? Where did you hear that voice? Was that an external voice? Was that an in- Did you really hear a voice at all? And by the end of it, the man came down to, I had a gut feeling about it. It felt right. And I thought, no, these are people that I can, I can train with. And indeed, he, he became a friend. It's important, isn't it, that we learn to know ourselves and try to be honest. Um, T.S. Eliot said about poetry, I think could be true in these circumstances too. Poetry, he said, may make us a little more aware of the deeper, unnamed feelings which form the substratum of our being, to which we rarely penetrate for our lives are mostly a constant evasion of ourselves. It's worthwhile to know ourselves better, to seek that in life. It's also worthwhile to be more clear about the values that we hold dear, for this is the moral compass that can help us adjust our course when we find ourselves not living in a way that we actually like or approve of. 
There's also, I think, value in seeking guidance from others at times about making the time to sound out other people's views. And the Quaker process of discernment very much involves working in a group of people to discern the path of the spirit, the path of light. One of the really interesting stories in Jonah Lehrer's book about um, the decisive moment was um, his description of how they had improved the safety record of airline pilots and surgeons by instituting a system where they were no longer the voice of God, where they were not given sole position of responsibility, but that rather the team around them was allowed to speak out when they thought things were going wrong. And it, it improved safety, both in, uh, in hospitals and on airlines. Because, you know, it must be quite scary to fly a plane, mustn't it? Or to operate on a human body. And I think, to be honest, it, it's quite a scary business just being a human being at all. We lead such complex lives and we've got so many issues to consider, often of a very contradictory, confusing nature. I think we need all the help we can get. And if we can get that help from one another... And if we can get that from whoever or whatever we hold to be divine, and if we can cultivate that inner wisdom that the emperor gained from the uh, hermit up on that hillside, and perhaps develop some processes to help us think and intuit more clearly, and then understand ourselves and our complex motivations a little better, well, if we manage all that, I think we'll have done okay. Amen. And so, may God give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed. May God give us courage to change the things that should be changed and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. Amen. Go well and blessed be.